Tonight, why one Bronx community believes hiring New Yorkers to patrol their own neighborhoods could help solve our public safety woes. Then, out of sight but not out of mind, the microaggressions that have some BIPOC employees dreading a return to the office as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. As we have recently reported, shoplifting has been on the rise in New York City, causing big-name retail and drugstores to lock up their inventory behind plastic cases and leaving small business owners worried about losing their stores to petty theft. While this has led some New Yorkers to call for more policing, one community in the Bronx is taking a different approach. The Fordham Road Business Improvement District, responsible for strengthening the over 300 businesses on Fordham Road, has launched a new initiative called the Patrol Ambassador Program. As part of the program, five paid and licensed security guards with ties to the community have been hired to patrol Fordham Road, one of the largest and most diverse shopping centers in the nation. Their goal is to use a community-based approach to discourage crime by engaging directly with business owners and providing additional sets of eyes to report any suspicious activity or criminal acts taking place. And joining me now with more on the Patrol Ambassador Program and if community-based groups like this could be the answer to our public safety problem are Councilman Oswald Felice and Albert DeLippi. Councilman Felice represents the city's 15th council district, which includes Fordham Road, and Albert is the director of the Outreach for the Fordham Road Business Improvement District. Gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you both to Metro Focus. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you and your audience. Of course, Glad yes. Glad to be here as well. Yes. Councilman, I want to start with you and just ask if you can sort of quickly, if you can, sort of paint a picture of Fordham Road for the handful of New Yorkers that haven't had the pleasure of shopping there. Well, Fordham Road is a vibrant community. It's a community of working class families. It's actually one of the most highly trafficked commercial strips in the entire Bronx. And people rely on the businesses for so many things, including uh, to purchase local goods. Whatever you need, you can find it on Fordham Road. And we also rely on Fordham Road for local jobs. In fact, my first job was actually in Fordham Road. Uh, so many young people are getting getting their first jobs and uh, gaining experience that they'll be able to use uh, in the future. So we're preparing them for the future. So, so much, whatever you need, you can find it on Fordham Road. And it's a really important part of the Bronx. So, Albert, I'm wondering about this uh, patrol, these security patrols. 
Um, specifically, this seems like the kind of solution to a problem that seems so obvious and yet somehow revolutionary enough to make news. How did this, uh, how did you come to this idea? Great question. So, you know, we've been overwhelmed with the amount of support that we've gotten since launching this. We never thought this would become a national headline as it has, because like you said, it is something so obvious, but you know, everything that we do here, we try to do it based on data. And so the Fordham Road bid, we were, we, we were founded more than 17 years ago on the core principles of providing supplemental services to city organizations. You know, uh, we wanted to create programs that help our neighborhoods succeed, grow and thrive. So in doing so, we launched surveys to the stakeholders in our community in 2021 through an Avenue NYC grant that the bid received from the New York City Department of Small Business Services. And we conducted 600 surveys with stakeholders in our community that included property owners, businesses, consumers, and street vendors. And some of the parallels that pretty much every stakeholder mentioned was that safety and sanitation were the biggest need in this community. So we already have a safe, we already have a sanitation team that, that cleans the district seven days a week, but we don't really have anything practical for safety. And so we thought, you know, why not create a patrol ambassador team? Same way we have a sanitation team to provide supplemental services to the NYPD, the same way we're providing supplemental services to the Department of Sanitation. And I just want to build on what you described a little bit and ask, what exactly is it that uh, the patrol service can do and what they can't do? Because, again, they're not police officers. Correct. So they're providing supplemental services to the police. They don't replace NYPD. Mm-hmm. Nobody can replace NYPD. But, you know, sort of just having more eyes and ears on the ground, you know, um, and the reason why we call them patrol ambassadors is we didn't want to we didn't want to call them security guards or patrol police or, you know, patrol officers. We, we, we specifically call them patrol ambassadors because part of their duty is actually to serve as goodwill ambassadors in the community. You know, so what that means is besides just the patrol that they're doing and looking out for crime, they're also providing directions. Right. They're also interacting with the homeless. They're looking out at loading zones for, for our major retailers. They're reporting quality of life issues to 311. Um, in addition to that, they're providing resources to shoppers and businesses. You know, so so the, this is this is why we you know, they're, they're more than just patrol. Right. They're community ambassadors in the sense that they're taking pride in the community and they're providing resources to our businesses as well. Councilman, I'm wondering with also uh, taking advantage of this community-based approach rather than, you know, the more traditional approach of adding police, um, would something like this also include security cameras or some sort? Like, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, the patrol is able to see something that's, you know, a problem or, you know, God forbid, actual petty theft or something in action, Um how do they then interact with the police so that if charges want to be filed, they can? These, uh, my understanding is that the program is supplemental to the different services that our city provides, including policing and also sanitation and so much more. Uh, we need uh, much more. This is a very important part of resolving local challenges, but I think we need much more. Uh, we've been in contact with the uh, sanitation department uh, there are some areas, not only in Fordham Road, but I think everywhere in the Bronx, uh, that are being used as uh, garbage dumping zones. And we've been working with the sanitation department to install cameras in those locations so that we could hold uh, people who think that the Bronx is a dumping ground, hold them accountable. Uh, so this is a very important part of helping resolve uh, local uh, quality of life challenges. Uh, but, you know, there's many other different things that we're doing to also tackle 
uh, those problems. And would this also, this sort of might ring familiar to some New Yorkers who still remember uh, Curtis Lewa's Guardian Angels. Is this program sort of similar to that or is it completely different? And Albert, I'll start with you. There are obvious similarities for sure. Uh, some of the differences that I would just like to highlight is that one of the unique things about this program was that all five ambassadors were previously unemployed, right? So one of the things that we want to do is be able to create job opportunities for members of this community to actually participate in the community that they live in or that they serve, you know? And so for us, that means that meant partnering with a workforce development organization. We partnered with Grayson. They provide workforce development and training for security guards and job placement. And so one of our goals with this program eventually, and hopefully if we're able to secure the funding for it, but is, is to, to be able to expand it in the sense where we can have a core group of patrol ambassadors and also alongside it have an apprenticeship program where we can provide job opportunities to members of the community to be able to work as ambassadors for, let's say, one to two months and then be able to get permanent job placement, ideally at one of the stores. I think that would be great or, you know, a security job within the community. So this way we can have a transitional kind of workforce program alongside the patrol ambassadors. And I think that that kind of makes it a little bit more unique um, in comparison to the guardian angels. You know, yeah. Council, yeah. Yep. I would also add that, you know, um, Fordham road is a vibrant community and there's a lot that needs to be done to help uh, the small businesses inside their business. Uh, but we also need to help with what's happening outside of their businesses. We want to make sure that, Fordham Road is a place where everyone wants to come come to, to shop and uh, do so much more to eat and so much more. And there's a lot that needs to be done, including outside of the businesses, to make sure that the Fordham Road can be that place where people want to come to, to shop, including making sure that our streets are clean, making sure that uh, city agencies are promptly uh, resolving local quality of life problems. Let's say, for example, if there's uh, garbage in our streets, in our sidewalks, if there's graffiti, we want that to get resolved uh, fast. And these are items that uh, these um, uh, officers are also helping with. Well, one of the points that Albert brought up that I think you might also wonder about, of course, is funding. Um, if you know enough funding comes through, uh, do you see this, first of all, as something, a program getting fully funded? And second of all, do you see this perhaps being something that could be scaled up for other neighborhoods in the city? Absolutely. You know, Fordham Road is uh, one commercial strip in uh, the in the city of New York. We have many different commercial strips uh, with the same challenges. Um, you know, the mayor called this program innovative. I would also call it innovative. And I think um, we're going to see a lot of positive results from it. Uh, so I, I, I could definitely see this program continued. Uh, you know, I could definitely see continued funding for this program. And I could also see a future expansion of the program and seeing other communities uh, take similar steps to resolve uh, local challenges. But just to sort of build on my question, I mean, as of right now, the Patrol Ambassador Program um, has only been in effect for a few weeks until the current funding runs out. So is there, I guess, um, a a political appetite to fund a program like this through the city? Absolutely. The Fordham bid uh, is... A, a great partner. They are uh, like local mayors of the Fordham Road community. And, you know, they do a lot of great work on every item, including and especially on local quality of life um, issues. Um, I provide fund, I help them with discretionary city funding 
uh, every single year. And I plan to continue to do so, especially so that they could continue to resolve, get creative in resolving local quality of life uh, challenges. So absolutely on my part, and I could also see other communities doing the same. Okay. And Jenna, if I could just add to that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you mentioned was something that inspired us as well is we wanted to create a neighborhood model for other business corridors to follow. Mm-hmm. And I got some word today that there's already been uh, similar kind of programs already about to start in, in certain neighborhood, cor- in certain corridors, including the Garment District, Flatbush, and in Staten Island. And so that's inspiring to us. You know, we'd love to be able to set that precedence for, for other neighborhoods to, to kind of follow. Right now, the Patrol Ambassador Program is, is only funded until the first week of March. So we are actively seeking, you know, funding opportunities to be able to not just fund the program, but also to potentially expand it as well. Of course. And lastly, because we are running out of time, we only have about 30 seconds left. But uh, Councilman, do you see this as perhaps also being an answer to uh, the community safety issue that all New Yorkers feel and has been fraught with some problems when it comes to police, traditional policing, let's say? Absolutely. I think Fordham Road and commercial areas in general, we um, rely on different uh, city agencies and departments, whether it's the police department, fire department, sanitation department. Um, But of course, the more eyes we have in our streets, uh, the more effectively we could connect our local communities to the services that they need. Again, whether it's sanitation services, Department of Transportation services, and so much more. So absolutely, I, I can definitely see this as that. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but I want to thank both of my guests for joining me tonight. Of course, uh, Councilman uh, Oswald Felice, representing the 15th Council District, which, of course, includes Fordham Road. Thank you so much for joining me. And also thank you to Albert DeLipi, who is the Director of Outreach for the Fordham Road Business Improvement District. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight on Metro Focus. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to join today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. The coronavirus pandemic has upended how and where many of us do our jobs. Only about 8% of Manhattan office workers have actually returned to office work full time. According to a recent poll by the business group Partnership for New York City, and that's something that Mayor Eric Adams, who sees return to office as critical to the city's recovery, would like to change. But for many employees of color, not just here, but across the country, remote work has meant a welcome escape from racism and microaggressions, the everyday subtle, indirect, and often unintentional interactions that communicate a bias towards members of a marginalized group. In fact, surveys show that remote work has vastly improved work life for many black employees and that they feel more valued and supported when they're working from home. That is particularly true for women of color. So the question is, what is the mental health impact of a return to office for employees of color? And how can companies make sure that gains of remote work are not lost when they bring employees back? So joining me now to answer those very big questions as part of our conversation on mental health series is Tara J. Frank. Tara is an equity strategist who advises companies on workplace culture and issues of diversity, equity and inclusion. Tara, it's so great to have you on Metro Focus. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jenna. I appreciate it. 
So, yeah, like I said, these are a lot of really big issues. But first off, I want to talk about uh, just the difference in work for people of color. Um, When I mentioned sort of in the intro that a lot of people of color, BIPOC employees have felt uh, that they have a better work life, not, I don't mean sort of work life balance, but better working experience. They feel more supported working remotely. Um, can you just expand on what that might mean for people? Absolutely. So many people of color and honestly, especially black people at work, um, felt like over time they were going into the office bracing for offense. Um, What I mean by that is so accustomed, right, to experiencing those microaggressions that you defined that they were almost anticipating them, which was putting on to people's shoulders just this burden, if you will, right, this emotional and mental burden. So being at home, working remotely, uh, they weren't as worried about that. They weren't experiencing it day in and day out. And those microaggressions uh, can look anywhere from, you know, can I touch your hair to just being ignored in a meeting, uh, not being included right in decision making processes or conversations being left off of uh, important communication. So it really does run the gamut. But people felt like they didn't have to be in those rooms experiencing those moments of insult uh, or offense. And, and when you say that people felt more valued at home, I honestly think what's happening is they just weren't feeling devalued. Of course. I'm also wondering if uh, everything that has transpired during this pandemic, uh, we've covered so many stories where it has just laid bare so many of the inequities, the inequality in healthcare, et cetera. But also there was a social movement. Um, The untimely, unfortunate murder of George Floyd led to a huge, long overdue conversation in a lot of workplaces. Did that also uh, change the way a lot of BIPOC employees might have felt about their company? Yeah, interestingly, it's it's a double-edged sword, to be honest with you. So many years ago, you know, we were all taught not to talk about race, Uh, religion or politics at work. Those were the three things you did not discuss. And then after George Floyd was murdered, everybody wanted to talk about race all of a sudden, right? People were asking uh, their black colleagues to tell them their black story. (laughs) And so on one hand, you know, you were happy that people were finally ready to talk about such a major influencer on our overall workplace experience. On the other hand, though, People asking you to continually kind of draw out your trauma, if you will, right, to access it, to talk about it, to process it day in and day out over and over again uh, really became, I believe, a a mental health and kind of emotional drag uh, on our general wellness. So it's it's a catch 22 because it's good for us to acknowledge and be open about the problems that we're experiencing. It also really can be difficult uh, to have those conversations over and over and over again. And remote work allowed us to at least be in our literal safe spaces while these conversations were happening, which gave us a sort of protection. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, what you sort of described in asking people, for example, to tell their black stories, as you said, was sort of a double edged sword and might speak to uh, a word that I know a lot of people have heard lately, but might not fully understand. And that is microaggressions. So can you sort of expand on what exactly is that? Yeah, a microaggression is defined as a subtle act of indignity (laughs) that basically tells people you do not belong. 
So you either um, shine a light on some element of a person's personhood or way of being in the world uh, that exacerbates the differences, right, between the person doing the acting and the person being acted upon. And those microaggressions over time start to feel like macroaggressions. You know, they don't feel very micro over time because the frequency with which many people experience those um, can really start to create separation, right, between an employee and an employer. Well, what about the pushback that some employers might have in saying that uh, there is a certain type of workplace decorum? Like this is you're not at home. You're not in your social setting. This is a professional setting. So there are certain standards that we expect our employees to adhere to. I think it's okay and acceptable and normal to have standards of conduct, if you will. But those should definitely be rooted in uh, business critical issues. They should not be rooted in perception. They should not be rooted in a narrow definition of what it means to be a leader. What we have to acknowledge is that for decades now, right, even longer in some companies, we've defined leadership based on a white male model. Because of that, when anyone shows up in a way that does not fit that definition or that view, when they communicate in a way that doesn't fit that view, when they lead in a way that doesn't fit that view, we automatically assume they are not leader-like. And when we have that kind of opinion or, or perception of someone, it inhibits their growth tremendously and also their ability to influence and to impact. So some of it is about our lens, right? Not so much about how the other person is showing up. And, and we really have to check ourselves on that moving forward. Of, of course. I do want to zero in, though, on the unique experiences of women of color in the workplace. And as I ask that question, I do want to acknowledge that uh, BIPOC women is a large, uh, varied group. So within that group, um, are there different experiences of marginalization in the workplace? Absolutely. At the end of the day, in any given entity, and our corporate workplaces are no exception, you have the people of power in the center, right? And in the center is all the stuff you need to have a great career, the insight, the sacred cows, the unwritten rules, the access to power networks and knowledge centers, and the opportunity. The reality is the more different you are from those people in power, the less Uh, connection you have to that insight, that access, and that opportunity. And women of color happen to be the furthest removed from that power profile that most of us are kind of contending with today. So women of color then don't have all the information they always need to be successful. They don't always have the access, right? The, The sponsors and the connectedness they need to be successful. And they certainly are less likely to get that opportunity to show and prove, right, what they're capable of on that big project or with that important client or on that next great opportunity. And a lot of this is fueled, as you might imagine, by affinity bias or proximity bias. Um, So there are some very real challenges here that just our dimensions of difference create for us, whether we intend for them to do so or not. And so, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the things that women of color lack is that all women of color, or are you speaking specifically of certain uh, groups of women of color, specifically uh, Latino women, black women, um, et cetera? Like, because 
again, BIPOC is a large group. Yeah, it's a very large group. And some of the issues or challenges are certainly nuanced. Um, But, you know, in most corporations, you have white men in the center. The next group out is white women, then men of color and then women of color. So all women of color are furthest removed right from that power, from that center where all the good stuff kind of hangs out. But there are nuanced experiences. So, for instance, uh, I know many uh, Latina women feel misunderstood. Right. We did a body of research for my book, The Waymakers, where we asked hundreds of employees across all dimensions of difference to tell us stories of times they felt seen, respected, valued and protected and to tell us stories of times they felt invisible and disrespected and underappreciated and scrutinized. And some of the nuances we were able to draw out from that research were really fascinating. Um, So again, for Latino women, they felt often misunderstood. It wasn't just that they felt invisible, but they actually felt mischaracterized at work. And that was a really big concern and something that often caused them to start to think differently about their place in a company. Uh, For Black people at work, they often felt disrespected at work, right? And that moment of disrespect was really acute. Like it happened immediately, causes a very strong emotional reaction and is often the moment that leads to departure, right? Or leads them to exit. So there are nuances in the groups depending on what they're experiencing outside the company that they bring with them inside the company. Um, But generally, women of color as a whole are not getting as many opportunities to grow. They're being promoted at a lesser rate um, and certainly paid um, most often at a lesser rate as well. Uh, of course, uh, equal women's equal pay days, the various ones that we have throughout the year are indicative of that. Um, but I want to ask for my final question, because we've got about a minute left for people who may have had um, directives given from their job, their business that they work for, that back to office is definitely happening and they're dreading the return to the office. What would be your advice for someone to protect their mental health and well-being? This is such an important question. I would say, number one, take what you've learned in this time you've been away about what it looks like to care for yourself, to give yourself grace and space and try to preserve as much of that as you can. But also remember, there's a flip side to this. Going back to the office also increases visibility. And without visibility, we don't really get the opportunity to contribute at our highest possible level. So there are puts and takes. And I think if we can remember that, we can go back to the office with a more balanced point of view uh, and a healthier mindset. All right. Well, listen, uh, my guest was Tara J. Frank. I want to thank you so much. Tara, again, is an equity strategist who advises companies on workplace culture and issues of diversity, equity and inclusion. Tara, thank you so much for taking time to have this critically important conversation with us on Metro Focus. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus the podcast. Also available at WLIW.org radio and on the NPR One app.